0: Chapter Eleven of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Mackenzie. John Dean of Toronto, a comedy of Whitehall, by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter Eleven. Here, I'm being trailed. Mr. Blair looked up from his writing table with a startled expression as John Dene burst into his room. In entering a room, John Dene gave the impression of first endeavoring to break through the panels and appearing to turn the handle only as an afterthought. Trailed? repeated Mr. Blair in an uncomprehending manner. John Dene stood looking down at him accusingly, as if he were responsible. Yes, trailed watched tracked shadowed followed bumped into trodden on snapped john dene irritably he was annoyed that a man occupying an important position should not be able to grasp his meaning without repetition you know anything about it he demanded mr blair merely shook his head he in john dene jerked his head in the direction of sir lyster's room hes 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 rather busy began mr blair Aw, shucks, cried John Dene, and striding across to the door, he passed into Sir Leicester's room. Morning, he cried, as Sir Leicester looked up from his table. Someone's following me around again, he announced, and I want to know whether it's you or them. Me or who, queried Sir Leicester, whether it's some of your boys or the other lot. After a moment's reflection, Sir Leicester seemed to grasp John Deane's meaning. "'I'll make inquiry,' said suavely. "'Well, you might suggest that it doesn't please me mightily. I don't like being trailed in this fashion, so if it's any of your boys, just you whistle them off.' "'I doubt if you would be aware of the fact if we were having you shadowed, Mr. Dean,' said Sir Leicester quietly." "'And in any case, it would be for your own safety.' "'Well, John Dene can take care of himself,' was the reply. "'He'd better give up and start a dairy.' "'How is the destroyer progressing?' inquired Sir Lyster, with the object of changing the conversation. "'Fine,' was the reply. "'Your man had better be ready on Friday. "'One of my boys will pick him up. "'Jim Grant's his name.' Sir Goliath Maggie has appointed Commander Ryles said Sir Lyster. Well, let him be ready by Friday. Gran'll pick him up on the way north. Your man can't mistake him. Little chap with red hair all over him. Don't forget to call off your boys. And with that, John Dene was gone. Ten minutes later, Sir Bridgman North found the First Lord sitting at his table. Apparently deep in thought. I can see John Dene's been here. Laughed Sir Bridgman. You and Blair both show all the outward visible signs of having been gingered up. Sir Lyster smiled feebly. He felt that Sir Bridgman was wearing the joke a little threadbare. He's been here about one of his men picking up Ryles on his way to Auchinlech. Said Sir Lyster. A little man with red hair all over him was his description. "'That's pretty comprehensive,' remarked Sir Bridgman. "'He'd better go through and pick up Riles at Scapa. "'They'll probably appreciate him there. "'It's rather dull for him.' "'I take it that Mr. Dean will follow in a day or two. "'It—' Sir Lyster paused then, "'seeing that he was expected to finish his sentence, he added, "'It will really be something of a relief.' He quite upset Richards a few days ago over some requisitions. I've never known him so annoyed. <laughs> Profane, you mean, laughed Sir Bridgman. What happened? Apparently he objected to being called a dancing lizard and told to quit his funny work. Sir Leister smiled as if finding consolation in the fact that another had suffered at the hands of John Dene. It's nothing to what he did to poor old Reynard laughed Sir Bridgman, a dear old chap, you know, but rather of the old Blue Water School. Sir Lyster nodded. He remembered that Admiral Rayner seemed to take a delight in reminding him of his civilian status. With Sir Lyster he was always as technical in his language as a midshipman back from his first cruise. Rayner wants to fit up the Toronto with an Archie gun, and John Dean told him to cut it out. Rayner protested that he was the better judge and all that sort of thing. John Dene ended up by telling old Rayner that the next time he better come in a dressing gown as he'd be damned if gold bands went with the color of his skin. Rayner hasn't been civil to anyone since, said Sir Bridgman, laughed loudly. I think my sympathies are with Rayner, smiled Sir Lyster, as Sir Bridgman moved towards the door. Frankly, I don't like John Dean. Don't like him? Why? Well, Sir Lyster hesitated for a fraction of a second. He will persist in treating us as equals. Now I call that damn nice of him, and Sir Bridgman left the First Lord gazing at the panels of the door that closed behind him. While Sir Leister and Sir Bridgman were discussing his unconventional methods with admirals, John Dene had returned to his office and was working at high pressure. Sometimes Dorothy wondered if his energy were like the widow's cruise. Finishing touches had to be put to everything. Instructions had to be sent to Blake as to where to pick up Grant and Commander Riles, and a 101 things Rounded it off,' as John Dean phrased it. During his absence, Dorothy was to be at the office each day until lunchtime to attend to any matters that might crop up. If John Dean required anything, it was arranged that he would wireless for it, and Dorothy was to see that his instructions were carried out to the letter. The quality about John Dean that had most impressed Dorothy was his power of concentration. He would become so absorbed in his work that nothing else seemed to have the power of penetrating to his brain. A question addressed to him that was unrelated to what was in hand he would ignore, appearing not to have heard it. On the other hand, a remark germane to the trend of his thoughts would produce an instant reply. It appeared as if his mind were so attuned as to throw off all extraneous matter. His quickness of decision and amazing vitality Dorothy found bewildering, accustomed as she was to the more methodical procedure of a government department. When you all know that you're likely not to know about a thing, then make up your mind, he had said on one occasion. He had no use for a man who would wait until tomorrow afternoon to see how things look. Then, I sleep on a bed, not on an idea. Was another of his remarks that she remembered, and once, when commenting upon the cautiousness of Sir Leicester Green, he had said, "The man who takes risks makes dollars." Gradually, Dorothy had fallen under the spell of John Dene's masterful personality. She found herself becoming critical of others by the simple process of comparing them with the self-centered John Dene. She would smile at his eccentricities, his intolerance, his supreme belief in himself, and his almost fanatical determination to ginger up any and everyone in the British Empire whose misfortune it was to exist outside the dominion of Canada. At odd moments, he had told her much about Canada and how little that country was understood in England, how blind British statesmen were to the fact that the eyes of many Canadians were turned anxiously towards the Great Republic upon their borders, how in the rapid growth of the USA, They saw a convincing argument in favor of a tightening of the bonds that bound the dominion to the old country. When on the subject, he would stride restlessly up and down the room, snapping out short, sharp sentences of protest and criticism. His imperialism was that of an enthusiast. To him, a Canada lost to the British Empire meant a British Empire lost to itself. His great idea was to see the old country control the world by virtue of its power, its brain, and its justice. His memory was amazing. If Dorothy found her notes obscure, and to complete a sentence happened to insert a word that was not the one he had dictated, John Deed would note it as he read the letter with a little grunt, sometimes of approval. "'sometimes of doubt or correction. "'There were times when she felt, "'as she expressed it to her mother, "'as if she had been dining off beef essence and oxygen. "'Sometimes she wondered where John Dene "'obtained all of his amazing vitality. "'He was a small eater, "'seeming to regard meals as a waste of time, "'and he seldom drank anything but water. "'At the end of the day,' Dorothy would feel more tired than she had ever felt before, but she had caught something of John Dene's enthusiasm, which seemed to carry her along and defy the fatigues of the body. Had it not been for the Saturday afternoons and the whole day's rest on Sunday, she felt that she would not have been able to continue. In his intolerance, John Dene was sometimes amusing, sometimes monotonous, but always uncompromising. One day Dorothy ventured a word of expostulation. He had just been expressing his unmeasured contempt for Mr. Blair. "'You mustn't judge the whole British Navy by Mr. Blair,' she said, looking up from her notebook with a smile. "'One fool makes many,' he had snapped decisively. "'So that if I prove a fool,' continued Dorothy quietly, "'It convicts you of being a fool also?' "'But that's another transaction,' he objected. "'Is it?' she asked, and became absorbed in her notes. "'For some time John Dene had continued to dictate. "'Presently he stopped in the middle of a letter. "'I hadn't figured it out that way,' he said. "'Dorothy looked up at him in surprise. "'Then she realized that he was referring to her previous remark,' and that he was making the amend honorable. His manner frequently puzzled Dorothy. At times he seemed unaware of her existence. At others she would, on looking up from her work, find him regarding her intently. He showed entire confidence in her discretion, allowing her access to documents of a most private and confidential nature. For week after week they worked incessantly. Dorothy was astonished at the massive detail requisite for the commissioning of a ship. Indents for stores and equipment had to be prepared for the Admiralty. Reports from Blake read and replied to. Requisitions for materials required had to be confirmed. Samples obtained, examined, and finally passed. and instructions sent to Blake. Strange documents, they seemed to Dorothy. "'Rendered bewildering by their technicalities, "'and flung at her in short, jerky sentences "'as John Dene strode up and down the room. "'If you could only see John Dene prancing, mother mine,' "'said Dorothy one day to Mrs. West, "'and the demure Dorothy taking down whole dictionaries "'of funny words she never even knew existed, "'you'd be a proud woman.' "'Mrs. West smiled at her daughter.' and as she sat her favorite place on a stool at her feet. "'You see, what John Dene wants is managing,' continued Dorothy sagely, "'and no one understands how to do it except Sir Bridgman and me. "'With us he'll stand without hitching.' "'Stand without what, dear?' asked Mrs. West. "'Without hitching,' laughed Dorothy. "'That's one of his phrases.' It means that he's so tame that he'll eat out of your hand. And she laughed gaily at the puzzled look on her mother's face. Mr. Dean has been very west. presently. I should miss him very much if he went away. There was regret in her voice. Now, mother, no poaching, cried Dorothy. John Dean is mine for keeps, and if I let you come out with us and play gooseberry... "'You mustn't try and cut me out, because,' looking critically at her mother, "'you could if you liked. "'No one could help loving my little Victorian white mouse.' "'And she hugged her mother's knee, "'missing the faint flush of pleasure that her words had aroused. "'Finding his welcome assured, "'John Dean had taken to joining Dorothy and her mother "'on their Saturday and Sunday excursions.' The picnic had proved a great success, and Dorothy had been surprised at the change in John Dene's manner. The hard, keen look of a man, who is thinking about how he could bring off some deal, was entirely absent. He seemed always ready to smile and be amused. Once he had almost laughed. She was touched by the way in which he always looked after her mother, his gentleness and solicitude. Wessy, darling,' Marjorie Rogers had said one day, "'you're taming the bear. "'He'll dance soon. "'But, my dear, his boots!' "'And the comical grimace that had accompanied the remark "'had caused Dorothy to laugh in spite of herself. "'If ever I marry a man,' continued Marjorie, "'it will be because of his boots. "'Let him have silk socks and beautiful shoes or boots,' and I am as clay in his hands. For such a man, I would sin like a temporary. Marjorie, you are a little idiot, cried Dorothy. I saw John Dean a few days ago, continued Marjorie. Did you? Yes, and I stopped him. You didn't, Marjorie. There was incredulity in Dorothy's voice. Didn't I, though, was the retort. And I gave him a hint, too. A hint? Dorothy felt uncomfortable. The downrightness of Marjorie Robbs was both notorious and embarrassing. Well, nonchalantly, I just said that at the Admiralty, men always kept their secretaries well supplied with flowers and chocolate. You little beast, cried Dorothy, remembering the chocolates and flowers that had recently been reaching her. I should like to slap you. "'Why not give me one of your chocolates instead?' said Marjorie, imperturbably. "'I saw the box directly I came in.' Nodding at a large white and gold box, that Dorothy had unsuccessfully striven to hide beneath a filing cabinet as Marjorie entered. "'If it hadn't been for me, you wouldn't have had them at all,' she added. Presently she was munching chocolates contentedly, whilst Dorothy found herself hating both the chocolates and flowers. At the end of the fifth week, Blake wrote that the destroyer would be ready for sea on the following Wednesday. The effect of the news upon John Dene was curious. Instead of appearing elated at the near approach of the fruition of his schemes, he sat at his table for fully half an hour looking straight in front of him. When at last he spoke, it was to inquire of Dorothy if she liked men in uniform. That afternoon, he worked with unflagging industry. It seemed to Dorothy that he was deliberately calling to mind every little detail that had for some reason or other temporarily been put aside. He seemed to be determined to leave no loose ends. Such matters as he was unable to clear up himself he gave elaborate instructions to Dorothy that would enable her to act without reference to him. At half-past five, after a final glance around the room, he leaned back in his chair. "'I shall sleep some to-night,' he remarked. "'Don't you always sleep?' inquired Dorothy. "'I sleep better when there are no loose ends tickling my brain,' was the reply. As Dorothy left the office a few minutes after six, "'He called her back. "'If I've forgotten anything, you'd best remind me. "'Mother,' she remarked when she got home that evening, "'John Dean's the funniest man in all the world.' "'Is he, dear?' said Mrs. West noncommittally. "'Dorothy nodded her head with decision. "'He wastes an awful lot of time, "'and then he hustles like, like, well, you know.' "'How do you mean, dear?' queried Mrs. West. "'Well, he'll sit sometimes for an hour looking at nothing. "'It's not complimentary when I'm there,' she added. "'Perhaps he's thinking,' suggested Mrs. West. "'Oh, no!' Dorothy shook her head with decision. "'He thinks while he's eating. "'You can see him do that. "'That's why he thinks salmon is pink cod. "'No,' John Dean is a very remarkable man, but he'd be very trying as a husband. Dorothy spoke lightly, but during the last few days she'd been asking herself what she would do when John Dene was gone. Sometimes she would sit and ponder over it, and then with a movement of impatience she would plunge once more into her work. What was John Dene to her that she would miss him? He was just her employer— and in a few months he would go back to Canada, and she would never see him again. One morning she awakened crying from a dream in which John Dene had just said goodbye to her and stepped on a large steamer labeled, To Canada. That day she was almost brusque in her manner, so much so that John Dene asked her if she were not well. The next morning when Dorothy arrived at the office, she found John Dean sitting at his table. As she entered, he looked round, stared at her for a moment, and then nodded, as if in an afterthought, added, Good morning. Dorothy passed into her own room. She was a little puzzled. This was the first morning that John Dene had been there before her. As she came out with her notebook, she looked at him closely, conscious of something in his manner that was strange something that she could not altogether define his voice seemed a little husky and he lacked the quiet the quick bird-like movements so characteristic of him she made no remark however merely seating herself in her customary place and waited for letters he drew from his pocket some notes and began to dictate Never before had he used notes when dictating. Several times she glanced at him and noted that he appeared to be reading from the manuscript rather than dictating. But she decided that he had probably written out rough drafts in order to assure accuracy. His voice was very strange. "'Did you sleep well last night, Mr. Dean?' she inquired during a pause in the dictation. "'Sleep well,' he repeated. Looking up at her, I always sleep well. Dorothy was startled. There was something in the glance and the brusque tone that puzzled her. Both were so unlike John Dene. She had mentally decided that he spoke to her as he spoke to no one else. She had compared his inflection when addressing her with that he adopted to others, even so important a person as Sir Bridgman North now he spoke gruffly as if he were irritated at being spoken to apparently he sensed what was passing through her mind for he turned to her again and said i'm not feeling very well this morning miss west i then he hesitated perhaps you didn't sleep very well she suggested mischievously no i'm afraid that's what it was he acknowledged Dorothy's eyes, opened just a little in surprise. A moment ago, he had stated that he always slept well. Either John Dene was mad or ill, and Dorothy continued to take down, greatly puzzled. Had he been drugged? The thought caused her to pause in her work and glance up at him. He certainly seemed vague and uncertain, and then he looked so strange. When he had dictated for about half an hour, John Dean handed her a large number of documents to copy, telling her that there would not be any more letters that day. To her surprise, he picked up his hat and announced that he would not be back until five o'clock to sign the letters. Never before had he missed lunching at his office, Dorothy was now convinced that something was wrong. Everything about him seemed strange and forced. Once or twice she caught him looking at her furtively, but immediately she raised her eyes. He hastily shifted his, as if caught in some doubtful act. At twelve o'clock lunch arrived, and Dorothy had to confess to herself that it was a lonely and unsatisfactory meal. At five o'clock, John Dean returned and signed the letters with a rubber stamp, which he had recently adopted. "'When are you going away, Mr. Dean?' asked Dorothy. "'I don't know,' he responded gruffly. "'I merely asked because two people on the telephone inquired when you were going away. "'And what did you say?' "'Oh, I just said what you told me. A man called this afternoon also with the same question.' For a moment he looked at her, then turning on his heel said, Good evening, and with a nod walked out. Dorothy had expected him to make some remark about these enquiries. She knew that john Dene had no friends in London, and the questions as to when he was going away had struck her as strange. The next day was a repetition of the first. A few letters were dictated. A sheaf of documents handed to her to copy, and John Dene disappeared. Again, lunch was brought for her, which she ate alone, and at five o'clock he came in and signed the letters. By this time, Dorothy was convinced that he was ill. The strain of the past few weeks had evidently been telling on him. When he had signed the last letter, she bluntly inquired if he felt better. Better, he interrogated. I haven't been ill. I thought you didn't seem quite well, said Dorothy hesitantly, but he brushed aside the inquiry by picking up his hat and bidding her good evening. Dorothy was feeling annoyed and a little hurt, and preserved an attitude of business-like brevity in all remarks to John Dene, If he chose to adopt the attitude of an uncompromising employer, She, on her part, would humor him by becoming an ordinary employee. Still, she had to confess to herself that the old pleasure in her work had departed. Hitherto she had looked forward to her arrival at the office, the coming of John Dene, their luncheons together, and the occasional little chats that were sandwiched in between her work. She had become deeply interested in the destroyer and what it would achieve in the war, She had been flattered by the confidence that John Dean had shown her in his discretion, and had felt that she was doing her bit. Again, the sense of being behind the scenes pleased her. She was conscious of knowing secrets that were denied even to cabinet ministers. The members of the war cabinet knew less than she did about the destroyer and what was expected of it. John Dene was a man who did everything thoroughly. If he trusted anyone, he did it implicitly. If he distrusted anyone, he did it uncompromisingly. Where he liked, he liked to excess. Where he disliked, he disliked to the elimination of all good qualities. Half measures did not exist for John Dene of Toronto. When Dorothy discovered that all the old intimacy had passed away, and John Dene had become merely an employer, treating her as a secretary, she was conscious that the glamour had fallen from her work. Somehow or other, the destroyer had receded into something impersonal, whereas hitherto it had appeared to her as if she had been in some way or other intimately associated with it. It was all very strange and very puzzling, she told herself. Sometimes she wondered if she had done anything to annoy him. Then she told herself that there was something more than personal pique in his manner. His whole bearing seemed to have changed, as if he had decided to regard her merely as a piece of mechanism, just as he did the typewriter or his office chair. It was at this period of her reasoning that Dorothy discovered her dignity. From that time, her attitude was that of the injured woman, yet perfect secretary. Her sense of humor had deserted her, and she arrived at the office and left it very much upon her dignity. Even Mrs. West noticed the difference in her manner, and at last inquired if anything were wrong or if she was unwell. But Dorothy reassured her with a hug and a kiss, and for the rest of that evening had been particularly bright and vivacious. When Mrs. West mentioned the name of John Dean, Dorothy did not pursue the topic, although Mrs. West failed to notice that she was switched off to other subjects. At the end of the week she noticed that John Dean handed her the week's salary and notes Hitherto it had been his custom to place the money in an envelope and put it on her table. She concluded that this new method was to impress upon her that she was a dependent, and that the old relationship between them had been severed. That evening Dorothy was always paid on the Friday evening. She held her head very high when she left the office. If Mr. John Dean required decorum, then he would have it in plenty from his secretary. The next morning and the Monday following Dorothy was very much on her dignity. She seemed suddenly to have become imbued with all the qualities of the perfect secretary. No hint of a smile was allowed to wanton across her features. She was grave, ceremonial, efficient. She worked harder than ever and when she had finished the task John Dean set her, she manufactured others so that her time should be fully occupied. For a day and a half she labored to show John Deane that she was offended, but apparently he was oblivious, not only of having offended her, but of the fact that she was endeavoring to convey to him the change that had come about in their relations. On the Monday evening, he did not return to sign his letters until nearly six. By that time, Dorothy was almost desperate in her desire to show this obtuse man that she was annoyed with him. She felt at the point of tears when he bade her good night and left the office just as Big Ben was booming out the hour. She would go home and forget all about this stupid creature, Dorothy decided, as she hastily put on her coat and dug the hat pins through her hat. On reaching the street, she saw John Dene standing at the corner of Charles Street. For a moment, she thrilled. Was he waiting for her? No. He was looking in the opposite direction, apparently deep in thought. She saw a taxi draw up beside him. The driver, a little man with a gray mustache, Dorothy remembered to have seen him several times crawling about on the lookout for fares. The taxi stopped and the man bent towards John Dene. Dorothy stood and watched. John Dean was right in her line of route to the Piccadilly Tube, and she did not wish him to see her. For a moment, John Dean seemed to hesitate. Then, with a word to the driver, he opened the door and got in. Suddenly, Dorothy remembered Colonel Walton's warnings. Impulsively, she started forward, just as the taxi started, and a moment later whizzing swiftly past her. John Dene was evidently in a hurry. At that moment, her attention was distracted by shouts and a smash. A small runabout car had suddenly dashed across Regent Street from the west side of Charles Street, and crashed into the forepart of another ca- taxi. A crowd gathered, a policeman arrived, and she had a vision of an angry taxi driver, another man pointing to the roadway as if the blame lay there, whilst the passenger from the taxi was running towards the Florence Nightingale statue, shouting and waving his arms at the vehicles passing along Pall Mall. Slowly, Dorothy turned and pursued her way up Regent Street. She was tired, and oh, it was so stupid going on living. That night, as she was undressing, she remembered the passenger from the second taxi. Why had he been so interested in the taxi that was bearing John Dene away, and why had he tried to signal to other vehicles passing along Mall? He had seemed greatly excited. Above all, Why had John Dene taken on a taxi when he had been warned against it? End of chapter eleven recording by Morgan McKenzie, Gallatin, Tennessee